0: Philippians 1, hopefully you're still there. Please, please turn back to that. Um, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30 today. And a couple of days ago, uh, Travis asked me if I felt like I was going to be able to cover all of the verses this morning, and I told him that I thought I could. Um, but sometime on Friday night, I began to start having my doubts. Uh, so while I'm still confident that I can cover all four of these verses in the two sermons I have for you today, I decided to kind of uh, cut the introduction and just use a, a discussion from the reading uh, of of all of Philippians chapter one from earlier, um, kind of to introduce what we'll be talking about. So, if you notice in your bulletins, the title of this sermon, "Worthy of the Gospel," comes from the exhortation at the beginning of verse twenty-seven, where it says, "Only let your manner of life." Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The exhortation to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I want to spend the first uh, section of the sermon today talking about what that means and why it is so important. And then I want to talk about the two examples that, that uh, we see in the text of what that looks like in our lives. Those are the two points that you see in your bulletin. Don't, don't go thinking that because there's two points, it's going to be short. <laughs> so that, that's what we want to do. What I want us to see today from this passage, uh, the point, the purpose of this sermon, what we want to see is what it looks like to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What it looks like, what does it look like to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel? Throughout the first chapter of Philippians that we just read, up to this point, Paul has been giving the church at Philippi strong encouragement, a word of encouragement. Throughout the first chapter of Philippians, this is what he's been doing. In that first section uh, 1-11, through Paul tells the Philippians how he is always thanking God for them and how he always remembers them with joy. He encourages them in verse six. You can follow along here in verse six, telling them that he is confident that he who began a good work in them will bring it about, bring about its completion. He reminds them they are partners with him in his gospel ministry. He tells them that he is praying that their love will abound more. And more, that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. How encouraging it would be for them to hear all these things. And in the next section, in in verses 12-18, through he encourages them more by confirming the good plan of God, even in what seemed like the terrible situation of Him being imprisoned. Something that they were most likely quite concerned about. He tells them that more people are hearing the Gospel as a result and that more people are preaching the Gospel as a result. And that even those who are not preaching the Gospel for the right reasons are still being used by God. And in the section immediately preceding the one we're looking at, Paul makes sure to encourage the Philippians about the real truth of what is behind him being a prisoner, and continuing on with how how it is making him stronger. That's what he says in twenty four through twenty six. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, uh, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again that that's what how he ends it with he's he tells them he is convinced that god is going to allow him to see them again so it's important to know that this is what paul has been doing up until this point in the letter he has only been encouraging them and updating them on his situation and it isn't until right now in verse 27 that he begins to give them some instructions on what they're to be doing and how they're to be acting. And the instruction that is being given is apparently extremely important because just look what he says there in this passage. Let's look at the passage once again, the whole passage. Only... that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He begins that section with the word only. It's the first word you read here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's not using it like, like we do sometimes when we're trying to minimize a task, like when we tell our kids, like, Only, you know, only you you only have to eat a few more green beans and then you can have dessert. It's not it's not that type of use of the word only. In fact, it's just obvious that he's using it to emphasize how important of a thing this is. Like like this is the one thing. This is the one thing I want you to be doing. This is the one thing you need to be concentrating on. Like like when a coach and if you've been in sports and a coach tells you, I want you to be working on one thing. Whatever he says next, that's important. That's what you need to put an emphasis on it. He has just given them this, this strong word of assurance that he is confident about them and that all that is happening to him is for God's great purpose. But they're not to just take that news and do nothing with it, it needs to motivate them into action. That word only is used there for emphasis, to emphasize that he is about to say something that is extremely important. This is the one thing I want you to do. Whether whether I come to you or I'm absent from you, this is the one thing that you need to be attentive of. This is what you need to pay attention to. Whatever happens, whatever's going on there, doesn't matter. This is the thing that you need to make sure you're doing. That's actually kind of amazing when you think about it. How, how can you say that about anything in the Christian life? Right? This is the only thing you need to be doing. The only way that that could be true is if what Paul is about to say is a command that completely embodies everything there is about the Christian life. And indeed, that's what it is. So when Paul says that the one thing you must give yourself to is to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, we know that it really is important to understand what that means and what that looks like. This means that, that in, everything, in everything that we do in life, everything we do, we are, we are either doing it in a manner that is worthy of the gospel or we're not. But what does that mean? What does it look like? If it's that important. What does it look like to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel? Because that sounds really difficult. I mean, isn't the reason that I need the gospel because I can do nothing that makes me worthy of it? Isn't that the point of the gospel? I need the gospel because I'm unworthy. So, so before we really get into the outline, let's talk a little bit more about exactly what it is that Paul means by this. And, and that has a lot to do with the unique Greek word that, that's translated here as uh, one, that is translated here as translated let your manner of life. Polituethe. We, we don't have an English word that is comparable to this word. You, you can hear the word polis in there. The word for city where we get, you know, like politics or or police. It's it's a word that almost literally means a verb that almost literally means to live as a citizen of. In fact, if you look over uh, just a a couple of, of chapters to 320, you see Paul say this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated as citizenship in that passage is the noun form of the same word we see here. It's a noun form of that same word. And if if you remember what Paul is doing here in, in 3.20 is that he's reminding them that they need to remember that their true citizenship, the place that they truly belong, is in heaven. It's the kingdom of God and they're not to actually think of themselves as, as, as citizens here, but as aliens. They're not to be putting up roots here. The city of Philippi was, was very proud of its connection to Rome. That's why this is such a, a, a big point that Paul tries to make throughout Philippians. It is, uh, Philippi has benefited tremendously from the building projects in Rome. In fact, uh, Philippi was the location and the name of one of the most famous battles in Roman history. The Battle of Philippi was the battle where Mark Antony and Octavian took revenge on the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius, in 42 B.C. There's a lot of pride in the city over their connection to Rome. Much like the tendency for many American Christians to take almost an unhealthy really amount of pride in their American citizenship so too did the Philippians have a tendency to think way too highly of their Roman citizenship. you can tell that this is a a concern for Paul throughout the entire epistle as he is consistently trying to help them to see the importance of separating themselves from the world and thinking more in terms of, of a kingdom mindset, kingdom of God. So then, back to our current passage, when Paul is calling the Philippians to live as citizens, they have an understanding of what that entails. There's an understanding that living as a citizen implies certain things that you prioritize. There certain things that you do. It demonstrates that you, you filter everything you do through the pride you have in your citizenship. You don't want to do anything you don't want to live in any way that could bring disrepute to the country that you claim to be a citizen of. So Paul is saying that you need to live with this citizenly dedication towards the Gospel, towards your true home. You don't live in a manner worthy of being a Roman or worthy of being a Philippian, or worthy of being an American, you have the much higher calling of living a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Now, knowing that this is the level of dedication that we are being called to makes this passage even immediately seem more difficult, right? Because while it might not be easy to live a life worthy of roman citizenship or american citizenship it is still possible right there are definitely people who who we have recognized and we can call a true american or true patriot but no one has ever lived their life in such a way that they deserve the gospel that they've earned it so so what does paul mean when he says to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and there are a couple of other passages that I think will will really help us out with that understanding. And you can write them down. Um, but what Paul means when he when he is saying "worthy" here is similar to what we see in a couple of verses in Matthew. In Matthew three eight, where John the Baptist tells the people that they are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The word translated there is "in keeping with." In, in that passage, it's the same word that's translated as "worthy" here. In our passage, it's the idea then of doing that which is appropriate in light of something else. That which demonstrates that you are repentant. So it's not producing fruit that is, that, that's going to make you deserving of repentance, but showing your repentance through your fruit, through what you do. I think an even more helpful text is, is found later on in Matthew ten thirty seven and 38 where Jesus says this, "...He who loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And he who loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after Me is not worthy of Me." So is this text implying that we can do something to make ourselves worthy of Jesus? of course it's not you can't do that you will die miserable trying to do that the idea here is is not that we are worthy of something it's that we recognize the unbelievable value of christ and his worth and his worthiness We understand that Jesus is worthy of being loved more than any member of our family. And Jesus is worthy of taking up our cross and following him, no matter how difficult it is. This is all about living a life that recognizes the worth and the value of Christ. So what Paul then is saying here is that we are to live lives that demonstrate an understanding of the all-surpassing worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying then, this is the one thing that I want you to pay the most attention to. Whether I'm with you or not, you need to be living in such a way that it is obvious that the gospel of Christ is worth more to you than anything else. if you are a Christian... This should not be difficult to understand because the Gospel is the most wonderful news that we can possibly conceive of. Just look down a couple of verses to chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing God becoming man and dwelling among us. And then then it says in that passage that he lives a life where he obeys God perfectly, something that we could never do. Then he he becomes obedient to death, taking on himself the penalty for our sins, the penalty that we deserve. We have no business having any kind of relationship with God. We we should be we deserve to be destroyed by him. But Christ takes on that penalty for us. He who knew no sin takes the penalty for us. And we receive, chapter 3, verse 9, a righteousness then that is not from us, but one that comes from Christ. And we now belong to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12. We're saved from, the, from, from destruction to a citizenship That is in heaven. We possess union with Christ, and and will one day have our lowly bodies transformed into glorious bodies. That's that's chapter three twenty and twenty one. This is the greatest news in the world. Do you really believe that? So, so this first part of verse twenty seven is simply telling us to live like that's true. Let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel. That that means that you will live like you really believe this Gospel. That this this message, this good news of redemption from sins and union with Christ is of greater worth than anything else in this life. This should be the heart cry of every real Christian. Of course, when we realize who we are, who God is, what sin is, how He has saved us. Of course we will want to do everything in us to live a life that demonstrates how grateful we are and how wonderful this news is. Right? When we understand this, when we really understand this, we sing easily and eagerly along with Isaac Watts. Right? The word, the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Yes, that is that is what we want. We want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's what we should desire. So so then, what does that look like? Well, there are actually many different applications. Like we said earlier, the word only implies that everything you do is either living in a manner worthy of the gospel or it's failing to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul here wants to give us two specific examples of what that looks like in these following verses. These are the two points you see in your outline. First, the first way... To live a life worthy of the Gospel is to be united. This is what we're going to spend the most time on. The the first way to live a life worthy of the Gospel is that we're to be united. Look again at verse 27. "...so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel." So the way Paul is going to know if they're doing what he says, if they are living the way he's going to know that they're living a life worthy of the gospel is when so so that that's what it says, he hears that they are what? That they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you get this? So you say that you are grateful for the gospel You say that it's worth more to you than anything else. That that it is your very life. That it is infinitely precious to you. Well, the way that this is evident in your life is not just that you read your Bible every day. It's not just that you give sacrificially. It's not that you're emotionally moved when, when we're singing the songs that we sing about the wonders of the Gospel, it's not just that you are faithful and praying. It's not just that you're a part of a family that, that worships together and has a right understanding of the different roles within the marriage and how a family should look. It's not just that you're hospitable. It's not just that you're faithful and evangelizing. It's not just that you hate sin and that you're fighting against sin. Those are all wonderful things, and they certainly are things that one who who is striving to live in a manner worthy of the gospel will be practicing. That is true, but that's not where Paul goes here. Look what he's saying. He says, what he's essentially saying is, if you say that you really love the gospel, if that message really is the most important thing in the world to you, the most precious thing in the world, then the way that's going to be the most clearly evident is in your relationship with the church. Saying, that's that's what I need to see. That's what I want to hear about when I'm absent from you. What does your relationship with the church look like? That's where the proof is. And he gives two examples of what this looks like so there's two subpoints that are they're just right there in the text you can just copy them straight from it standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel so subpoint a standing firm in one spirit this has the sense of taking a defensive posture together not not backing down because you know that you are united in the same Spirit. This language is very similar to what you actually would read one page to the left in most of your Bibles in Ephesians six, thirteen through 15 where Paul says, "...therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness." as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This this passage happens to be the exact passage that Travis will be covering tonight in our Armor of God study, so I don't want to go into too much detail here, but the point uh, that I want us to see is that when we think in terms of spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in, We are not to think, as we look about this church, that that there are 200 people here or so in Grace Church who are engaged in 200 separate spiritual battles. No, we, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We are fighting the same battle together. When you let yourself be deceived... Into thinking that you're fighting your own battle, it is so much more easy for you to take sin lightly in your life. Because you've deceived yourself into thinking that this is your issue. That's just between you and God. It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't believe it. When you make the decision, to go ahead and just give in to some temptation? Or to just try and deal with some issue that you've been struggling with on your own for years and years and, and just kind of pretend everything is fine? Look around the room. That decision affects all of us. That is all of our problems. There's no such thing as your own personal demons or your own private sin or even that you have your own cross to bear in in the sense we usually speak of it. That's not true. That's not biblical. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel like that's your experience or not, while it is true, I don't want to deny that, that each of us stand accountable for our own sins and only for our own sins, there is not a sin that I commit that does not affect every one of you in some way or another. Even what I my, might my, what my think of as like a small thought life type of sin, that takes me out of the battle that I'm fighting with you. Like the same way a, a soldier who is actively engaged in a firefight... And can't help but affect everyone else on their side if they duck out for a second to, to check a text message or something. When you understand this, then, it starts to make sense why Paul would say that the thing, the one thing that proves that you believe that the gospel is greater worth than anything else is this is your relationship in the church. Because if you really love the gospel, then you absolutely will hate your sin with everything in you. That's why Christ had to die. That means you will do everything that it takes to get rid of it. So it means that you're willing to expose it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The ones who God has put there to help you fight it. This is really the, the main reason that many of us are unwilling to, to really get in the fight. So many of us are content to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel with our giving or, or with our praying or with our decisions to live morally or our, our decisions to shun the world. We have that. That's how I'm going to show that the Gospel is of infinite importance to me. That's what I'm going to do to do it. those are great things and we should be doing them. Those are all the things we can do ourselves. That's exactly why Paul uses unity in the church. Standing firm together is the real proof. Yeah, all those things are great. But if you really love the gospel, if you really understand its importance, if you really understood the seriousness of sin, then you will hate your sin more than the idea of asking for help. And you will hate your sin more than the idea of admitting your weakness. And you will love Christ more than you love your reputation. You're going to hate that sin that's so negatively affecting your marriage more than the idea of being in counseling. The one who really understands the gospel, the one who really understands their union with Christ, is the one who understands that that union with Christ means a union with the church that is his body and active participation in the battle that the whole church is engaged in. And Paul doesn't just say he wants to see us worshiping together, that's not what he says. Wants to see us in battle together. Standing firm together in one spirit. And because when someone is in a battle and they're wounded, they're actually a detriment to the cause if they pretend nothing's wrong. So that's sub-point A. That's what, of what unity that demonstrates that we're living lives worthy of the Gospel, looks like. Subpoint so B then is, again, right there in the text, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. I love the picture in this phrase. Striving side by side. While of one mind. One purpose. Striving. That word striving means to contend or to to struggle with to struggle along with this means that not only are we going to take our own sin seriously enough that we're going to take it to others but we will also willingly make the problems of others into our problems just, just like the one who is wounded needs to recognize that the best thing that they can do for the sake of the cause is to get help and to stop pretending everything's okay. So, the one who notices that someone looks to be limping or appears to be wounded knows that they have an obligation to get involved there. We're to be striving side by side. That means if you look to your right or to your left, And you see someone who's not able to make it to the line. You have a responsibility to find out why. Again, we can see why this is the real proof about what you believe about the Gospel. Because striving side by side isn't something that you can do alone. You cannot obey this command alone. You can't do it. It requires you to get into the lives of others. It is a test of what you really believe about sin. When you see the warning signs in someone's marriage or in the, the way they walk, the way they maybe talk about their priorities, do you see that as their problem? And maybe at best, you'll pray about them. Or... Do you see those problems as your problems? Because they are those who you are in union with. They are part of the body of Christ that you are a part of. And you have the responsibility to struggle along side by side with them. This is what we mean when we talk, when we say uh, that, that phrase that Bill says all the time, know and be known. Are you striving for these things side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you eager to to let others know you? And are you eager to really know others? Notice he says with one mind. One mind, that means we should all have the same purpose. We're a collection of individuals in the church that share a single purpose purpose, that are of the same mind. And I know that that just rubs against our American and especially Coloradan prizing of, of individualism and autonomy. But this is just the truth. The way we demonstrate that the Gospel is our highest prize is seen in our striving together side by side with the same mind. The whole reason that striving together side by side makes sense is that it assumes that we all have the same purpose. Our ultimate aim as a church the two things, remember? The reason we exist is to disciple believers and to evangelize the lost. That's our purpose. That's what we are doing. That's that's why we're here. To do that together. So if your reason for being here is about getting something out of it for yourself or how it makes you feel or any other reason, if you're not all about discipling others, being discipled yourself and getting the gospel of Christ to those who need to hear it, then you are living in complete disobedience to this passage. You're not of one mind with the church. You're not striving for the same things that the church is striving for. You're of your own mind. Living for your own purposes. So if you love the Gospel, if you prize it above all else, then you will long to strive side by side with each other. With the same mind. The word translated mind here is the word suke. It, it means more than just having the same understanding of our goal. The word is most commonly translated as, as soul, it refers to the, to the inner self. So, so when we say with one mind, we don't simply mean that we've all come to the mental acknowledgement. That discipleship and evangelism needs to be our goal. No, being of one mind means that this is, it's not just our understanding, but it's our desire. It's what we long for, what we're dying to see take place. And that should be the one mind that is driving all of us. And it's supposed to be the collective desire of the church. As a whole. That's what Paul is saying. This is what he wants to see. This is what he wants to see. Not only us understanding why we're here, but more than that, are we longing for that? Are we longing for the same thing? If not, why not? Just listen to these words that Paul uses to describe the church again. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. How much different are those phrases than this one, which we more commonly use? Be involved in the church. Do you hear the difference? The biblical language. Paul uses compared to get involved. Get involved in the church is a phrase that communicates such a low bar, such a low expectation. It allows us to look around and see other people who are not as involved or in as many programs as we are. Maybe people who just come on Sunday mornings, and and we can look there and say, well, I'm I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm pretty involved we can check that box off we say i'm involved in in the worship team i'm involved in the choir i'm involved in the sound team i'm involved in children's ministry i'm involved in the coffee shop i'm i I teach a sunday school class or maybe i do one or two or three of those things and i'm i'm super involved right just but, but just like mere church attendance is not even, it's not even the bare minimum of what it means to be part of the church. We need to understand that, that being, even being super involved isn't even the bare minimum of what it means to be part of the church. Uh, don't get me wrong. We want you to be involved. And even, even more and more so, we, need, we do need you ministering to the church. And it is definitely true that those who love the church will love to serve in the church. But you, you need to understand this biblically, if your involvement in the church somehow in your mind gets you off the hook so so that you don't feel quite as bad for, for, for hiding your sin, for putting up a front, for pretending to be something that you're not, or, or if it allows you, if you can look at that and be fine with that and it allows you in some way to be okay with refusing to get Involved in the mess of other people's lives? Or it allows you to to feel fine for not striving to, to know and be known? And what you have done is you have found a way to use your involvement in the ministry of the church to weaken it. Because what our church needs... Far more than ministry holes being filled by people who need to feel like they are serving in some way is a church filled with people who are standing firm with one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel so if, if right now you 're looking at yourself and And you're looking in your own life and you don't, you don't feel that strong desire for that one purpose. If you don't long to see your brothers and sisters in Christ growing in sanctification, if you don't long to see the gospel proclaimed to the lost, I need to ask again, why not? It it might be because you're not actually a Christian. That might be the case. That could be true. Maybe you don't actually have a desire to live a life worthy of the Gospel so much as you just want to feel like you are doing that. By doing the things that come easier to you. By allowing you to privatize your walk. If that's the case, please Come and talk to me immediately after the service. I want to talk to you. But another reason why that whole one mind, one purpose thing might not be there could be because you haven't really given yourself to the church. In the end, for you, the church really is there to serve you and your purposes and to help you with what you need help with. And you look at what is done here and the different ministries we, we offer, okay, kind of like a menu. Things that you can choose from. Like I'm certainly not saying that in order to be a faithful disciple of Christ who lives worthy of the gospel, that you have to be here every time the church doors are open. I know there's reasons and sometimes good and godly reasons for not. But I am saying that you probably need to take a long look at your heart whenever the elders, the elders whom God has placed over you for your good and for your joy, whenever they prayerfully bring opportunities for growth, for learning, for fellowship before you, do you look at each of those and ask questions like, is that one going to work out for me? Hmm. Or, or do, do I want to do that? We need to, we need to talk to my wife and figure out if that's something we want to do or not. Is that your attitude? Or do you ask differently? Do you ask, based on my fervent desire to strive side by side, with one mind, with this church, is this something that God would have me do? And and if so, what are some things I might need to give up in order to do it? And am I willing to? If you want to be one mind of one mind with the church, it means you give yourself to the church. One heart for the church is shared and and it's nurtured and it's strengthened most prominently when we gather together as a church. For example, I know for certain that if when I was talking just a moment ago about the two purposes of the church, if you didn't immediately think evangelism and discipleship if that's not the first thing that came to your mind when you hear that, I know for certain that you are one of the people who doesn't go to a quipping hour. I know it. And that should bother you a little bit, that there is a foundational understanding that half of the church has, that half of the church that you are supposed to be standing firm with, that you're supposed to be striving together with in one mind, that half of this church has a reference point that you're clueless about. In a similar way, tonight we're going to be meeting together. And as providence would have it, we're going to be talking about how as a church to stand together. That's, that's what the Armor of God study has been about. Our pastor helping us to, to understand better what it means for us to engage in spiritual warfare together. That's what we've been discussing And then after that, we're going to spend time striving together side by side in prayer. If you're struggling with this understanding of the church that I'm talking about today, let me encourage you to be there. Let me also encourage you that if, if any of the stuff that I've been saying right here in this last very long point is causing you to think Maybe there's something deficient in your understanding of the church and what it means to be a part of the church. Maybe I don't quite get it. If you've been at all convinced by, by, by this last point, if you've been convicted in any way, then, then let me just tell you, a fairly easy and immediate point of application would be to immediately, after this service, go and sign up for the equipping hour class called Membership Matters, which begins next week. That's not just a class for new members or people who are thinking of becoming members, although if that's you, you should definitely go. This is a class that's there that's going to help you to work through all of the common misunderstandings that, that have just fallen on you, that you've grown up with about the church just because of the culture we live in. It's going to war against those with a biblical understanding of what the church is. So, the first way that we see in this passage that Paul implores us to live in a manner of life that's worthy of the Gospel is by striving for real biblical unity. A unity which is marked by those who are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together side by side for the faith of the Gospel. And the second point is we're going to spend far less time on, is that we're unafraid. Unafraid. And we see this point right there in in verse 28. It's right there. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So Paul says that the other thing that he wants to hear about them, whether he is present or absent, is that they are not frightened in anything by their opponents. So what he is saying again then is that if the Gospel truly is the most valuable thing to you then your life will be marked by a type of fearlessness he goes on to say in verse 28 that this is a a clear sign to them to their opponents of their destruction it was also a sign for your salvation or of your salvation so the word this is in that verse that might refer to both points that that we 've talked about that both the church striving together in unity and the church being unafraid of their opponents is a sign, and we definitely see from other places in the New Testament that our unity is supposed to be a sign of our salvation, but I want to focus on the unafraid point that it definitely applies to because i 've spent far too much time on the first point already, so he says what he says here is that we are not frightened. By anything in our opponents. That means that we should be living in such a way that it is obvious to everyone that we are not afraid of what anyone else can do to us. Unfortunately, you see so many Christians and, and even pastors out there who are just so afraid of the, of the liberal trend that we see coming, the, the liberal tide coming on our nation, they, they, they sound fearful. But here we are told that those who prize the gospel above all else will be free of this type of fear. Why? A somewhat simple answer is that if, if we understand that we deserve to spend eternity in hell, eternity in hell, billions and billions and billions of years after, at the end of which we're no closer to the end than when we began, eternity in hell. But Christ has saved us from that. What in this life could be so bad that it would even be worth comparing to that? I look over real quick in the, in the next chapter again in 3, 20 and 21. That verse we looked at earlier. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Christ, whom we belong to, is going to transform this body, our lowly bodies, to be like His glorious body. There is therefore nothing in this earthly life that we should fear. Well, what's the worst that can happen to you? You can die. And Paul has demonstrated it back in 121, the attitude of the one who really believes and prizes the gospel of Christ. That's their attitude is, is dying is gain. If I die, I get to be with Christ. And if I live, I get to keep serving Him. It's literally a win-win situation all the time. Even though Paul does admit that to die would be better. So are you afraid of death? Why? The only reason would be because there's something here she you love more than Christ. So it makes sense then that those who believe in a sovereign God and love His gospel will not be afraid. Why, why is it a sign of destruction? Why is it a sign of destruction? Look, look up from 3.20 to 3.19. Paul says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds on earthly things. This is, this is the only other place in the book of Philippians where, where that same word for destruction is used. And here we see a description of those whose end is destruction. Destruction. And look what's important to them. Their God is their belly. What, what does that mean? It means that, that that which they worship is their own appetite. They, they live for the things that bring them immediate pleasure. They only want to satisfy worldly needs. That's what they live for. It says they glory in that which should, they should be ashamed of and that their minds are on earthly things. So, since this is what those whose end is destruction live for, then when they see us living for something else, they can't understand it. When we are those who understand that our citizenship is in heaven, and therefore we long to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, the threat of losing our homes... Our jobs, our health, our lives, even our families cannot cause us to despair utterly. And when they see that we have no fear of losing those things, they cannot comprehend it. And their inability to comprehend it is a clear sign that they are of those whose end is destruction. And the verse goes on to say it is also a sign of your salvation. And that sign is from God. So in this verse, we find that God gives us a sign of our salvation. A sign of our salvation. By the way, this is yet another place in the Bible where we see that whenever we are told to, to be assured of our salvation, we're not to look, uh, we're to look at something that is going on in the present. In the present. What does your life look like right now? What are you living for right now? Does what I'm about to say here describe you right now? We're never in the Bible told to look at some past moment where we pledge some type of dedication as evidence of our salvation. No, this is is a sign of your salvation. What's the sign of your salvation? Your fearlessness. We're told it is from God, that this is a sign that's from God. And in verse 29, we see the unbelievable reality of what it means that the sign is from God. Look Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. It says it's been granted to you or it's been given to you as a gift. That word translated as granted is not not the word that would indicate that some sort of indifferent um, switching of possession. It's not that. This is the word that means something that's been freely or graciously given. Something that's been granted to you as a favor. God has given you two gifts in this verse because of his love and his grace. He gives you the gift of belief. God is the one who grants it to you to believe. The fact that you believe and trust the gospel is not because you are wise enough to figure it out. It's because God saw you in your totally depraved state and He chose to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. And had He not done that, you would have never believed and you would have continued to serve the God of your belly and to pursue earthly things. The only difference between you and those whose end is destruction is that God has granted to you the gift of belief. This is the most amazing gift that we can ever imagine. You can never actually receive a greater gift than for God to open your eyes. It is so important then to understand that the very God who loved you so much that he gave you this gift also loves you enough to give you the gift of suffering. That's what this verse is saying, that he's granted to you. Most of us, while we love and cherish and are amazed every day by the wonders of that first gift, we don't look at the other one like a gift. We look at God and, like we know better than Him and say, you know, I'm, I think I'm good with the one gift. I mean, that, that's fine. I don't want to be greedy. But before we're tempted to start thinking that we actually know what's best for us, We need to understand that we need both of these gifts to see the clear sign from God about our salvation. Because the sign is that we will not be afraid. That's the sign of our salvation, that we won't be afraid. But in order for for us or for anyone to see that we are not afraid, we have to be in the presence of that which should frighten us. So God brings suffering to us to show to unbelievers that they do not know Him, but also to bring us the joy of knowing that we are His. Because nothing else could possibly explain our ability to lose jobs and homes and loved ones and even our own lives and know that God is using them for His glory and for our good, to know that and not, in, and not sink into despair. Nothing else explains that. Except for that you've been changed by God. Or at least when we despair, to be able to lift up our heads and take joy in our certain salvation. When I was in eighth grade, I had a basketball coach. His name was Mr. Neiman. He was the one teacher at my school at the time that I knew was a professing Christian. I was still an unbeliever at that time, an unbeliever who thought I was a believer. And I do remember that I thought there, were, uh, there was something different about him. And, and he led a Bible study for some of the students once a week. Uh, but given that all of my teachers in middle schools had to act in a similar way uh, in class, there wasn't really anything drastically different about him from, uh, fr- from the kind of relationship I had with him. When I was in college, I worked at the coffee cart at the Northern Colorado Medical Center. I worked there every morning. And one day, Mr. Neiman came in. I hadn't seen him in years. He recognized me right away. It was very early in the morning, so I didn't have a, a lot of customers yet, and he just stuck around there with me, and he was asking me all kinds of questions about my life. How my parents were doing, how my sister was doing. What church I was going to, how involved was I at the church. And he's asked some other questions that I think were probably there to to make sure that I was actually a believer now. He asked me how he could be praying for me. And then I finally, finally got around to asking him how he was. And why was he here at the hospital? And he told me that he had just discovered that he had an extremely aggressive cancer and he only had a couple of months to live. He then quickly had to leave for his appointment, but as he left, he asked me to pray for his wife and kids because this was hard on them. While most people in that situation would be battling bitterness, trying to make deals with God. Mr. Neiman spent the last weeks of his life planning every detail of his funeral to make sure that the gospel was preached clearly and praying for everyone he knew would be attending, that God would save some and encourage others. And indeed, at his funeral... The truth of this verse was evident. He saw believers encouraged and overjoyed with the testimony they saw, and I saw my unbelieving classmates confused about the end of his life and why didn't have a bucket list or something. This is the sign. That's the sign. Mr. Neiman lived the end of his life with the joy that nothing else in this world could explain. How else could he handle that situation in that way other than through Christ? Other than be the fact that Christ had done something in him. That's how it should be for us also. God graciously grants us belief and suffering so that you can live in a world they grumbles and they complains when they're denied anything and when the government isn't going the way they think it should they lash out they throw fits when they get bad service at a restaurant or in a store and they hold bitter grudges against anyone who they perceive has acted against them in any way now god will faithfully graciously give you the gift of suffering of real pain and real loss for the sake of Christ so that you will you will in that moment look to the richness of the gospel and find this inner unexplainable joy that will then shout to you the most wonderful truth imaginable this is real this is real i'm really his i really belong to him i'm really changed what can anyone do to me? And seeing this and and, and, and knowing those truths, we can see in verse 30, right in verse 30 where Paul says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, So we can see that not only is that accomplishing the sign for us, but it also shows that we are engaged in the same conflict that Paul is engaged in. We are really part of the people of God. We are really and truly a brother in Christ to the Apostle Paul when we embrace suffering like he did. The implication here then from what Paul says, from Paul's words there, is that you actually could probably minimize your pain and suffering by deciding to not live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it seems evident from all of Philippians 1 that the degree to which you strive to live for the gospel is the degree to which your suffering will also increase. So, so, so there's kind of a way out a little bit if you really don't want the gift of suffering. But if you believe God, how could you really want that? So church, as we begin this year, let's, let's make it our ambition to live the rest of our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. That it would be evident in us, in a, in a real unity among us, marked by our standing firm together, our striving together, and not fearing anything that this commitment to strive together with one mind might cost us. Because we know that our loving Heavenly Father graciously gives us all suffering so that we can have the confidence that we are His. Our gracious and good Heavenly Father, help us to embrace the sign of fearlessness that can only come when the gifts of belief and suffering meet. Give us, give us, we pray, that wonderful sign of assurance that comes through suffering. Help us to love Christ and His gospel so much that we will go all in on giving ourselves to His church. That we will that we'll really mean the words that we are about to proclaim in this song. We would long to dwell together in faith and unity where the bonds of peace, of acceptance, and love are the fruit of your presence among us. Father, help us to be that church. In Jesus' name.